0: With a uh, Aaron Blake of the Washington Post about the debate coming up in a little bit and uh, one of the headlines is a candidate with no shot with 2% took a just shot at Joe Biden and everybody saw for what it was and thought it was out of bounds.
1: Is it elder abuse?
0: And, um, and he's the only one in America trying to pretend that that's not what it was. So. What? what? That? No. <laughs> well, that's not what I was doing at all. Oh,
1: that that's what you thought I was at? No. Oh, wow. wow. That would be awful. No.
0: Why would I do such a, <laughs> only a creep would do something like that. Um, so we'll talk about that coming up in a little bit. NFL season is up and running. We got week two coming up this weekend. And uh, Rob Gronkowski, who's officially retired from the New England Patriots, was making the rounds, talking football a little bit, and he had this to say.
1: I will let my son play football, but first off, um, I will educate him on the game. You know, educate him on, like, what I went through. And... I truly believe that anything, you know, any injury that you, you, you receive is, is fixable, though. I mean, I went through mm-hmm. it. I had nine surgeries. Probably had, like, 20 concussions in my life. Like, no mm-hmm. lie. Probably, like, I remember, like, five, like, blackout ones. Like, but well, you I don't said remember. you had a pint and of blood drained from your body after the Super Bowl because of internal bleeding. Yes, because of internal bleeding. But, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm fixed. <laughs> what a tank. Wow! Jeez, I had 20 concussions, I'm better now
0: (laughs) Yeah, your brain The brain doesn't fix itself like that Now that other stuff, yeah, you can break your legs and all that And they can more or less fix it Although, if you've ever known anybody who played hardly any football at all They all still have injuries It doesn't get you back to normal We had a boss here who was a a college football player And he he had to turn his head like this And he was a young, fit guy Because he'd
1: broken some bone in his back Or whatever And, And everybody's knees are completely shot if you play one or two years in the league as a lineman, you're probably going to be limping as an old, as an elder person. Well, like, isn't
0: there life expectancy? Most of them die in their late fifties if you're NFL lineman. But the idea that your brain—now, I, I can fix that. First of all, he sounds like a guy who's had twenty concussions. Um, which is probably not a funny thing to say because they have actual brain damage from that. He, I probably had like twenty concussions. No lie and at least five of them were blackout concussions where I don't even remember them happening. Woo! And then the other part, the pint of blood drained out of you after the Super Bowl? I'll I'll pass. No thanks. (laughs) That's a lot of blood.
1: It's going to be very interesting to see what happens specifically to the talent pool of the NFL as he said he would let his kids play. But you hear more and more former NFL people. He's an idiot, though.
0: Use not, your the, words, not mine. The other players who aren't idiots, a lot of them say, no, my, I wouldn't no. let my kid play
1: that. No, game. I'm not going to do that, yeah. Um, uh, and particularly, there's big industries in, in various states of, of youth football, and and at what age do you start playing tackle? And it's it's going to be interesting to see what effect that has on the NFL.
0: I clearly got a concussion the one year that I played football in eighth grade, and I, I, I probably shouldn't have done it. Or, you know... just. The way football used to be run, and it's not anymore. But I was in eighth grade; I weighed eighty-eight pounds, and the biggest oh. guy on our team was a f- was the same size in eighth grade as when he went off to play Division One football from high school. Because he was one of the stud athletes that ever came out of our
1: eighth grade our area. A beard, one of those types. Oh yeah, just, he yeah. was
0: just he was he was he was a stud, and uh, and he played Division One football, and um and he was this and and so we we're doing these drills where they'd put you real far away because they wanted to get some really serious hits. And I'm running with a ball, my 88 pounds. And he he came and just completely just blasted me. I went flying through the air and hit the ground, and, like, I couldn't see anything. I had a headache for, like, a week. I couldn't see anything. I didn't even know where I was. And because I got knocked out of bounds, I had to go run a lap. Oh, you know, gosh. punishment for getting for an eighty eight pounder getting killed by a two hundred pound man. And uh, no
1: water. That's
0: weakness. I got punished to had to go run a lap. And I remember running that lap and I was thinking i got I just I could hardly see. I could hardly move. Oof. oh, it was, it was terrible. And so if you play football and you're you're serious about it, you do that like every game, if not back in the day, every practice you have those kind of collisions and it ain't good for your brain. I blame everything I ever do wrong. My forgetfulness. Everything I, on that one hit. On the, on that one person in particular, you should blame him. Yeah, or well, the <laughs> coach. Just just looking back on it, and I don't want to come off as a snowflake or whatever. But, but what is that? What are you teaching anybody? What did he learn from that experience, and what did I learn from that experience, For, as an af, from an athletic standpoint to be a better football team? Oh, well, the only thing maybe I learned is that you shouldn't play football. You're too small. Uh, maybe Work that on was your the, jukes. <laughs> But yeah, what what what? What's, but you know that was back, and the, the kind of coaches just think, "Oh yeah, that's awesome." The little guy got killed by the big guy. That's freaking
1: awesome. <laughs> when concussions were just described <laughs> as oh a bell rung." He yeah, got his he got bell his, rung. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Twenty but,
2: concussions.
1: Uh, like I said, I'm I'm fixed.
0: Uh, <laughs> you sound fixed. <laughs> you sound fantastic. Pint of blood drained out of you from internal bleeding after the Super Bowl. Wow, that's something
1: you remember. had a and pint of blood drained from your body after the super bowl because of internal bleeding. Yes, because of internal bleeding. Yeah, I wonder why Andrew Luck stepped away when he did. Yeah, I remember
0: I don't remember who it was was one of your uh, had been playing forever, John Elway or whoever toward the end of the career talking about how it would be Wednesday or Thursday before they like like were walking normal after a Sunday game. So 4 or 5 days of doing nothing before you can get back to where okay, I kind of feel normal and then 2 days later you're back to getting the hell daddy again. You know, they, it's your choice. You get to do it. And I, it, you know, doesn't bother me that you make that decision. I, um, I think it should be legal to, to get to do that if you want. Uh, but like you said, I don't know how many people, especially with the salaries where they are, if I can make enough money, I'm set for life.
1: I'm out. If you are athletic enough to make it in the NFL, there's a good chance you could be a professional athlete in another sport. True. Uh, that. Maybe not in America, but internationally, you can, you can have a great career and make tons of money
0: playing sports for a living. Or starting earlier, if you've got that kind of talent, you just focus on a different sport. Right. It's hard to catch up with some sports like baseball or whatever true, we've true, seen. True. But if you had started down that path, if Team Tebow or Michael Jordan had started with baseball, they might have been alright. Um We're going to talk to Aaron Blake of the Washington Post a little bit about the debate. Did anybody think that was a good idea for Julian Castro to <laughs> say that Joe Biden is uh, losing his mind on a, on a national stage? Stay tuned, coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show.
2: The Armstrong and Getty Show. This is about candor, honesty, big ideas. Let's have a big idea. The the tax of 2% that the senator is talking about, that raises about $3 billion. Guess what? That leaves you about $28 billion short. The senator said before, it's going to cost you in your pay. There will be a deductible in your paycheck. You're going to the middle class person, someone making 60 grand with three kids. They're going to end up paying $5,000 more. They're going to end up paying 4% more on their income tax. That's a reality. Now, it's not a bad idea. If you like it, I don't like it. (laughs) I thought that was a good way to put
0: it. I thought that was a great way to put it. Biden's so much better. In the first, like, 45 minutes than he was at the end of the debate, when he had a couple of answers toward the end that were just rambling, I'm an old guy who's been on stage for three hours. We're going to talk with Aaron Blake, senior political reporter writing for The Fix, The Washington Post. Aaron, welcome to the Armstrong and Getty Show. How's it going?
3: Thanks for having me. Doing great.
0: How many people you think watched the entire three hours that weren't paid to watch the whole three hours? (laughs)
3: <laughs> um, I know some people who were paid to watch the whole three hours, who didn't watch the whole that, three hours. I'm, I'm in that. Uh,
0: I'm <laughs> in that boat. I get paid to do this sort of stuff, and I'm. I was good for like two hours. Then I thought, you know what, I'm kind of watching my Twitter feed. I know what the highlights are. I think I'll fast forward to those. Um, so, what are your headlines out of uh, last night?
3: Well, look, I think it was better for the party to have the top candidates on stage. It it reduced the, you know, one percenters kind of throwing bombs from the side of the stage. Although we certainly had a little bit of that when it came to especially Julian Castro trying to get uh, noticed in that debate. But, uh, you know, it wasn't as nasty as it could have been. It certainly had its moments. I thought they had substantive differences on many issues, even when some of the candidates were complaining about all the arguing, like You know, these are debates. You're supposed to debate these things. We're talking about a $30 trillion program, and and whether people agree with that or not is kind of a pretty important question for the Democratic Party right now. So I think all in all, this debate may not wind up changing a whole lot in this race, but I think it fills out the picture of who some of the leading candidates are.
0: Yeah, I don't think it changes much either. If you're in the lead, that's awesome. Um, If you're down toward the bottom, it's a trouble. I see you're from Minnesota um uh, which reminds me uh, Amy Klobuchar was on the stage the senator from Minnesota and she she was really good and i saw her afterwards and then like mayor pete was really good and saw him afterwards being really good and those people that just don't catch on it's it's always kind of a mystery to me who catches on who doesn't
3: yeah i think amy klobuchar the the answer is somewhat obvious which is that she's much more of a pragmatist in this field even i think relative to what you know joe biden is um, I think she can be compelling in certain ways, but I've always, you know, as a Minnesotan, I've always talked about kind of the uh, the kind of pizzazz deficit that some of these Midwestern candidates have, right? Which and is I which is troubling.
0: Said. If you're from the Midwest, <laughs> you know, I'm from the Midwest also. Um, pizzazz is not our thing, but that shouldn't have that shouldn't have that much to do with whether or not you're president,
3: right? I, I'm, I'm certainly afflicted with this as well, but I think that. Especially in this day and age, when it when our politics is much more yep. performative than it than it generally is, that that is a significant issue. As far as Pete Buttigieg, I think he's been good in every debate. He may not be the standout you know candidate in any of those debates, but I think he's been steady. He's had lines that were well received that didn't necessarily come across as talking points, even though they you know, seemed like they were prepared as such. Um, I think he's, you know, I I don't know if Democrats are necessarily going to see him as being a president. And I think that's his biggest hurdle as somebody who's in his late 30s and looks like he's in his early 30s. But
0: he He does have the unfortunate thing. He's young and looks younger than he even is.
3: (laughs) Yes. Yes. And and, uh, so I think that's a hurdle for him. But, you know, the more he puts together performances like that, I think maybe people start to adjust their expectations of him.
0: Um, does the, the Democratic Party gets to, to run their party however they want? I just, I just wonder if, if, uh, and for both parties, really, if these debates are the best way to showcase their candidates, uh, we, we have a bit of a theory around here that this might be the last go around of these kind of presidential debates that with social media and changing, uh, you know, younger people with shorter attention spans, this, this might be the, the last gasp of this sort of thing. You have any thoughts on that? It seems a a bit anachronistic to me.
3: Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's the way it's always been done. I mean, it's our only chance to see everybody on stage at the same time. Actually, but it doesn't have to be. with one another. It doesn't have to be, but that's the way the parties have set it up. Certainly, I think one one thing that occurred to me last night, and I've thought about this before somewhat, is um, what if we did these debates without an audience there? Oh, I think absolutely,
0: there such a, absolutely,
3: such a, and that was a huge audience last night. It it puts a premium on kind of uh, who got laughter, who is, is getting the zingers, who's attacking one another. I think it'd be much easier for people to judge these things if if there's not a real-time reaction. And as much as the moderators can say, you know, don't applaud, we're just trying to get through the issues here, like, you can never totally keep that in check. And so I think maybe that's one reform that people well, can
0: yeah. start talking getting about. Getting back to the the, necess- necess- the necessity of having pizzazz, with the crowd there, pizzazz is so important. And also, that the crowds tend to be the extreme of whichever party it is. So it's really tough on the moderates. The moderates either get booed or get no applause. Amy Klobuchar gets no credit for saying, I want to be president for the whole country, not just half the country. No, you want to be the extreme candidate in those crowds.
3: And I think we saw last night, this was the first debate that was held Uh, at a historically black college since 2007. And, of course, the questioning reflected that to some degree. But I think you also saw the candidates maybe change how they talk about certain issues, uh, given the audience that was there. Um, It's just, I think, I I watched, uh, there was a debate uh, between the two candidates to lead the Conservative Party in Britain a few months ago, and I don't know if there was an audience there, but if they were, they didn't actually say anything. Hmm. Uh, and it just kept, it kept moving along, and it was great, and the moderator was very sharp, and it was just basically three people in a room talking over issues, and I felt like it actually accomplished some things in, as far as learning what the differences were and people not just doing this for the performance.
0: Uh, two more questions with Aaron Blake, senior political reporter with The Washington Post. One, the, the moment that's getting the most attention, uh, Julian Castro... Um, trying to take a shot at Biden's age. That's clearly what he was doing. And he got killed in liberal social media, I saw.
3: Yeah, I think they, the, some people thought it was mean. I think the bigger issue here is that there the substance behind it just wasn't there. Uh, he was accusing Biden of saying that people had to opt into his public health care option. Uh, and he accused Biden, when Biden denied it, he accused him of basically forgetting what he had said just a couple minutes earlier uh, and really made a show of it. Well, it, it turns out, if you look back at what Biden said, he actually did say people would be automatically enrolled in that public option. So, you know, if you're going to make a big scene, if you're going to pull off, you know, the Kamala Harris thing from the first debate, you got to make sure that you have the substance down before you go down that road. And I, I don't think it's a, you know, a death blow for Julian Castro's candidacy. I think he's generally been good at these debates. But I think that it was, uh, you know, it was a curious uh, time to take his
0: spot yeah rahm Emanuel on abc as uh, the pundit called it disqualifying which i thought was pretty uh pretty strong talk and then the final question i have is the the last couple of answers joe biden gave not the very last answer i thought his last answer about what he's overcome and him talking about what's important in life and its family and i thought that was great i thought that's why uh joe biden is liked by so many people in washington dc that was that was a sort of genuine human being stuff that Hillary Clinton couldn't come within 100 miles of her pulling off. But a couple of his final answers were long, rambling, what are you talking about? If he did that on a stage with Trump, Trump's going to blast him for that. There has to be some concern among Democrats of the Biden camp about uh, well, when he does that.
3: Democrats have been expressing these concerns, mostly privately for a while now, uh, after the debate. I don't know if you saw Cory Booker go on CNN and basically make that point.
0: He oh, really? Said,
3: you know, this this isn't necessarily about age. He was asked whether he was talking about age. But he said, you know, Joe Biden does talk in a meandering way, and he's been doing it for a lot of years now. And, and Booker said, basically, that makes me wonder if he can carry the ball across the finish line when it comes to the general election. Um, I, I think that, you know, Trump is not the most skilled debater, but he certainly is good at seizing upon People's yes, vulnerabilities in these debates. And I think you make a really good point there. And it's the point I've actually been making since, since Biden started kind of firing up the gas machine that he usually uh, brings along with him on these campaigns, which is that, you know, it, it's you know, the president certainly makes his own gaps. Do Democrats really want to put somebody forward who could risk doing something that's really going to be potentially disqualifying in the general election? And if you look at all these, sorry to cut
0: you off, Aaron Blake. We're out of time. Um, I, I appreciate you coming on, senior political reporter of the Washington Post. Enjoyed your insights, Aaron Blake, the Washington Post. On um, what do you got coming up in your news, Marshal Phillips? Well,
2: the House is setting the stage for impeachment. We'll get into that former fbi director uh, andrew mccabe could be facing some serious charges and it is friday the 13th and one group one industry is offering quite a deal Oh, awesome
0: what two groups are the best tippers and who are the worst tippers I'll have that for you at the end of the newscast.
2: Right now, news with Marcia Phillips. Well, rules governing the possible impeachment of President Trump have been approved by the House Judiciary Committee. The party-line vote essentially sets parameters for how the committee would handle impeachment proceedings. New York Democrat Jerry Nadler, who chairs the committee, said it's part of a process to determine whether to recommend articles of impeachment to the full House. Nadler getting challenged on the inquiry by republican doug collins some call this process an impeachment inquiry some call it an impeachment investigation there's no legal difference between these terms and i no longer care to argue about the nomenclature the difference between formal impeachment proceedings and what we're doing today is a world apart no matter what the chairman just said this is not anything special Collins at one point looking around the room saying, You know, I've wanted a long time to be able to say this. Welcome to Fantasy Island. We're here. <laughs> there
0: you go. <laughs> I think the telling uh, the telling moment about that impeachment dust-up yesterday, that happened yesterday, is that the, the word never came up in a three-hour debate. If it was a big, serious move by the Democratic Party right. that they thought the, the country was hungering for, Oh, wow, not even the country. All you need to appeal to is Democrats on that stage last night. You know, they're all trying to get the nomination, and still not a single candidate mentioned once impeachment in three hours. That's how it's just that tiny little group of Nadler and AOC and a couple others who are pushing this.
2: Yeah, the majority of the House Democrats are supporting impeachment. Boy, I tell you, though, Speaker Nancy Pelosi continues to resist.
4: Impeachment is a very divisive measure. But if we have to go there, we'll have to go there. But we can't go there unless we have the facts.
2: So she's saying, let's follow it in the courts. Let's see what happens in the courts.
0: I got some numbers on impeachment. Uh, Let me dig these up from my notes. I came across last night that I thought were pretty good. Uh, You talk amongst yourselves while I find them. I was taking in a lot of uh, social media last night. Gotcha. And uh, they were making the point that impeachments in the past have had a fair amount of bipartisan support. Mm -hmm. Actually, quite a bit of bipartisan support. Uh, I don't think I can put my hands on that. But right. when...
1: Um, so the thing I said was the the Nixon one, I think there, there, were, there right. were four dissenting votes. The Clinton one had, I think, I forget if it was 30 or 50 uh, Democrats that were willing to, to back it to to start the inquiry. Right. I did just come across it. Yes, yeah, so the Washington Post uh,
0: had the, the impeachment uh, inquiry for Clinton. He had 31 House Democrats back in the GOP. Yeah. So all the GOP voted for it and 31 House members with... Um, Nixon, it wasn't even close. It was a 410 to 4 vote. So either bipartisan or overwhelming. On this one, you've got only half of the Democrats and no Republicans. That's a pretty different world. And that's why you didn't hear the word mentioned once on the stage last night.
2: A U.S. attorney is recommending charging former Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe for making misleading statements during the Hillary Clinton email investigation. That is a move which will now pave the way for an indictment of McCabe.
0: Yeah, this is a confusing one. He could be in real trouble.
2: Yep. President Trump has often criticized McCabe who's the man who ordered a special counsel investigate Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election. McCabe appealed the recommendation, but it was rejected today by the Department of Justice officials. According to an inspector general's report, McCabe lacked candor. We yeah. questioned about leaks during the Clinton email investigation.
0: Yeah, what happens to you when you lie to the FBI? He lied to the FBI a lot. He lied a lot, including under oath. But here's what's interesting, and I don't think a lot of people get. I didn't get it till last right. night. McCabe didn't lie about the Trump-Russia stuff. What he did, That's not what he leaked. Right. What he leaked was the Clinton email investigation. Which, it, the assumption is that he leaked that to try to help him and make it look better that, hey, I'm being bipartisan here or something. Right. But he still broke the rules by leaking that information. And here's the scoundrel thing that he that he then did. He, um, bah, 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 he then went to the various national offices... And laid into the FBI agents, somebody here is leaking to the Washington Post, we won't stand for it, that is not the way we do business, and really got on the FBI yeah. agents when he was the leaker himself. Wow. They should
1: have hired me to work there, because wow. as soon as he does that, I've been like, hey dude, did you leak something to the Washington Post? <laughs> you're, oh, really? You're protesting so much right now. Yeah,
0: so that's a pretty jerk move right there. Not right. only is it illegal and uncool to leak the, the, any investigation, then go scream at the agents, we've got a traitor in our midst, when you're the guy. Shows you the kind of person that McCabe is.
2: All right, my friends. Tattoo shops are offering cheap tattoos today to honor Friday the 13th. That's a good idea.
0: Go as cheap as you can on your tattoo. Yes, budget. Group on it if you can. Your permanent <laughs>
2: body markings for the world to see. Go, go with the lowball offer. All across the country, people will be sitting in shops waiting to get inked up for 13 bucks. Did you know the hot thing right now?
0: I just came across yep. this the other day. My wife told me. Um, I can't say the word on the radio. Blanky chandeliers are the hot tattoo among a lot of young women. They're Blanky. underneath your uh, your your brustical region, huh? They go right here, and they call them. Oh yeah, the blank- little ta- the, like the cleavage. Blanky chandeliers is what they're called. Booby. So it's the yeah, that's not the word they use, but it's yeah. similar. Yeah. 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 Um. So it's <laughs> kind of the new tramp stamp, as is seen oh, really? by you know people who follow culture. Um things things become popular then get a certain um vibe I guess. Like I don't think the lower back tattoo was originally seen as a tramp stamp but it became a tramp stamp. Now the 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 booby chandelier has got a bit of that aura to it. Also.
1: Yeah, that is becoming more of a thing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh sad news. Rocker Eddie Muddy is dead. Singer and songwriter from the 70s and 80s had hits like Two Tickets to Paradise, Take Me Home Tonight. He passed away from complications. He had uh, esophageal cancer. He, you know, it turns out Eddie was born in Brooklyn, New York. He became a cop for a few years. Then That's an he, interesting career path. Then he moved out to Berkeley, uh, California to pers- uh, pursue his passion of music. Man, he rocked for over 40 years, sold nearly 30 million records. 30
0: million records. Well, wow, nobody will ever do that again in the yep. future because nobody buys records. Yep.
2: Eddie Money. What's di- a record? Right, exactly. <laughs> Eddie Money died at the age of 70. And i got to tell you, I interviewed Eddie a number of times over the years when we were both in San Francisco. A good guy, really accessible, and really loved to party. And smoked a lot. He smoked a lot. And he got esophageal cancer, yeah. which should oh, not be left it.
0: out of the story. No.
2: Yeah. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips, C. Armstrong and Getty Show, The Conscience of the Nation. So, uh,
0: maybe my... F- favorite political pundit is Lanhee Chen who we have on regularly and he's actually prepped major candidates for debates like last night when he was working with Mitt Romney's campaign when he was working with uh, the guy from Florida Marco Rubio's campaign right. and we're going to talk to Lanhee Chen coming up in just a few minutes stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty show.
2: Armstrong. the Armstrong
1: and Getty Show. And in Odessa, I met the mother of a 15-year-old girl who was shot by an Mm AR-15, and that mother watched her bleed to death over the course of an hour, because so many other people were shot by that AR-15 in Odessa, in Midland, there weren't enough ambulances to get to them in time. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47,
2: we're not going to allow it to be used
0: a i thought that was the best moment beto has had since he announced for running for president a terrible topic to have to talk about obviously but it's genuine and real and he seems like a real human being now i think the policy is not going to fly very well with the majority of americans a government gun confiscation but uh beto had some real moments and, and bernie gurgled and uh julian called <laughs> biden senile and that's just part of the uh the equation with the debate last night. We're going to talk with Lonnie Chen now. David and Diane Steffi, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, maybe our favorite political pundit that we ever have on the air, and he's got a podcast we'll tell you about coming up. Lonnie Chen, welcome to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Thank How's
1: you. it going? So Great I be with you this morning.
0: I, I ask everybody this. I'm wondering how many people actually watch the whole three hours. I'll bet it's less than a million in the whole country. Do you watch the whole three hours?
4: Yeah, I mean, I wow. I, I did. Good but for I, you. I people usually drop off after the first 30 to 45 minutes i mean that's that that just remembering from um, you know when i did a lot of work with cnn and they had the metrics on this it seems like most people kind of stick around for that first half hour then they go and, and get a pizza <laughs>
0: well yeah i'm glad you brought that up so like when you were prepping candidates when you were working with either you know mitt romney or or whoever else um do, do you guys know that and try to get your best stuff in early knowing people are going to go away later
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean uh-huh. you, you definitely want to, to make a strong first impression. And usually they're gonna front load whatever is most newsworthy or whatever they perceive to be the most important issue first. So for example, last night we saw a lot of health care early. Sure. we a lot of health care early. And so, so so they tend to do that.
0: And then to that point, I was watching the debate and I probably watched two hours of it, then I went to uh to uh started fast forwarding to clips I heard people talking about on social media. But uh, early on I thought Biden was strong and made his points and separated himself from the other candidates and got some shots in. Man, his last couple answers, aside from his closing thought which I thought was fantastic and another real human moment, um, his last couple answers were a rambling old man who'd been on stage for 3 hours.
4: Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think he started off strong and performed well when he needed to perform well, which was right as the debate got going. Uh, you're right. Toward the end, it was rambling. Uh, y- you know, I-, I thought that exchange with Julian Castro was the exchange of the debate. Um, sure. I don't know if you've played it today, but the one where basically Julian Castro accuses Biden of being old. Correct. Uh, and-, and, you know, I didn't think it played well for Castro, obviously. But but for Biden, at least, I thought it was probably the strongest debate to date.
0: Yeah. Which, you know, when you've got a double digit lead and you have your best debate, that's a pretty good position to be in. Are are we really down to a three person race and uh, and even the two that are chasing Biden got to figure something out if they want to beat him?
4: Yeah, that sounds right to me. I think, you know, you've got Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden. You've got a couple of other people who could potentially uh, make their way back into it at some point. But the odds are beginning to, to look pretty slim for people like Kamala Harris. Uh, Cory Booker would be another, you know, Beto O'Rourke did have that moment you played, but, you know, his, his campaign is effectively done anyway. He, he's always searching for a moment anyway. Sure. He sort of got this... Uh, I'm, I'm going go to go to curse words when I feel like I need to, to create a moment. It's the same playbook he had when he ran for the Senate in Texas. And by the way, what Beto O'Rourke did last night is he basically guaranteed he'll never win statewide in Texas. Uh, he, he'll 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 just not. He he doesn't have a political future in Texas given the position he has on guns. It's just not going to happen.
0: Yeah, let's um, talk but, a little bit. Know, of, I mean, yeah, yeah, I was I was going to bring up issues as opposed to people. The issue of mandatory gun buybacks and and the the moderator said some critics would call that a confiscation that's because that's what it is a confiscation uh how does america feel about confiscation of guns
4: yeah i mean I, I i still think in general you'll find that most americans probably don't like the idea um i i think most americans will perceive themselves as being for sensible gun control and i the reason i use that phraseology is because What is sensible, obviously, is in the eye of the beholder. And, you know, when you talk about background checks, expanded background checks, you talk about assault weapons, uh, some controls on that, you know, limits on capacity, things like that. I think people say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, when you start to get into policies which are even arguably confiscatory, then I think you run into a little bit more difficulty. I think people generally out there would say, yes, we need more common sense controls. But the defining common sense is really the difficult part of this. And I, and I don't think that Beto O'Rourke saying, you know, yes, we're going to come after your AR-15s. I, I, I don't know that that is something that a majority of Americans would say, yeah, I agree with that policy.
0: Talking with Lanhee Chen, who you see on a, a variety of the big national shows. Um, and he's also got a great podcast called Crossing Lines with Lanhee Chen. The latest episode, Meet the Boss, features the new Congressional Budget Office director, Um, maybe you talk about that on your podcast, the budget and everything, but not a lot of deficit talk on the debate stage last night. Of course, neither was there on the Republican debate
1: stage.
4: Yeah. You know, it's one of those things, and we've talked about this before. I just don't know that it's a topic that, that resonates as much as voters anymore. You know, I thought the interesting thing last night is there wasn't a lot of talk about the economy general, right? You know, there was some talk about China and trade, but for, for a topic that really animates most voters decisions when they get to the ballot box. To not spend more time on the economy was disappointing, and I would have liked them to, to say a little bit more about what they plan to do on the economy. If the economy slows and we enter into some kind of recession, what's their plan? What are they going to do? We didn't hear much about that. Now, part of that might be because they don't have a lot of ideas for how to how to get out of it that, that are particularly unique, and so maybe they, you know, the, the moderators figured, let's not talk about it. But for such an important topic to spend such little time is very interesting.
1: I don't
0: want to sound like Julian Castro going after Biden's age, but... He had a couple of rambling old man answers, and he had some sort of mouth tooth problem at some point that's become a like a <laughs> meme on the internet. I mean, th- those are serious things to worry about, aren't they?
4: Well, it was. I don't know if you caught Cory Booker. They, they um, Cory Booker had an interview. I think it was on CNN after the after the debate. And, and he said something which I thought, you know, was right. It was sort of cringeworthy, but right. He said a lot of Democrats are worried about Joe Biden's ability to get the football across the goal line <laughs> uh, because, because it's like, you know, you can you can see him running and running and running. And then at some point, oh, no, he stumbled to your point. I think that's the concern. His numbers are durable. Joe Biden's numbers are pretty durable. He's still got a lot of support. But you're right. There are these moments where people are reminded that Joe Biden is, first of all, who he is, he has been his whole political career, who's somebody who you know rambles and, and goes on tangents and isn't particularly focused. And then the age issue does kind of come back into it more subtly. And I thought Booker did that much more effectively than Castro did during the debate.
0: But then the last question, which was, you know, what what have you overcome? What's the biggest hurdle you've overcome, biggest setback you've ever had to overcome? And Biden's answer about what's really important in life and, and, and losing family in a car wreck and the cancer and stuff. I thought there aren't many politicians that can pull that off without sounding jivy, And he can.
4: Oh, absolutely. and and And, you know, it's an incredible life story. It's a tragic it life is. story. And it's one which connects with people. You know, everybody's experienced pain of some sort in their life, and to hear that, and 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 I think that resonates with people. I think that's what makes ultimately what makes Joe Biden, I think, the front runner and the strongest candidate. It's not his policy positioning. It's not even his ability to be Trump. Really, what it is is his humanity. And I think the more he connects with that humanity, the more people will forgive him the rambling. They'll forgive him the stumbling. They'll forgive him. The things that don't sound coherent, and they'll realize that he's just a guy who wants to, to to do well for his country, and I think that's something that'll be very appealing come next November. Well,
0: wow, that's pretty good, right there, Lon He Chen. That's interesting. I think you're right, um, and and it really makes uh, Julian Castro attacking him make <laughs> look even worse.
4: Yeah, well, you know, it, it comes back to this question again: Did anybody realize Julian Castro was running for president? Right, you know, yeah. and and it, it, it makes him look like a small man, which which you know, last night would suggest he is.
0: Um, the, the part of the debate that made me the angriest, and I just wonder why it works this way. You got Jorge Ramos from Univision up there, and he tries to force Joe Biden into apologizing for a Democrat president deporting a few people because it was the law, because we have illegals in this country. Why do the questions come from an, such an extreme point of view? Jorge Ramos is clearly an advocate for illegal immigration.
4: Well, remember, the the premise of these debates is conflict. The, the, you know, And this is not just – I'm not just speaking about the network that hosted last night. I'm saying any network hosting any debate, they want to see fireworks. And so the premise, the fundamental premise I think Ramos was going after is the same premise you're going to see future models going after, which is will Joe Biden draw distance from Barack Obama? Will Joe Biden disavow things that he was part of during the Obama administration – that progressives and Democrats now feel is is passe or bad policy. And so that's what he was trying to do. And by the way, it's not the last time it's going to happen. You're going to see plenty more efforts in the future to separate and distance Joe Biden from Barack Obama. Uh, unfortunately, I think for the networks, Barack Obama remains very, very popular. And it's going to be tough to get Biden to really disavow things that he did during the Obama administration. But that's the dynamic that we're seeing there. They're trying to get separation. They're trying to get conflict. And I would expect to see it again.
0: The podcast is called Crossing Lines with Lonnie Chen. Got a new episode called Meet the Boss we just told you about with the Congressional Budget Officer, Office Director, and more episodes on the way. Uh, Lonnie Chen, thanks for your time today.
4: Thanks for having me. Have a great weekend.
0: You betcha. I think he's absolutely right about that. When when Biden does his real human moments like he did at the end of the debate there, the sort of stuff that, like I, I keep saying, Hillary Clinton couldn't come within 100 miles of ever pulling that off. Then he'll be forgiven a little bit for some of his old man stumbles. In the same way, you might be, uh, you know, you you you're okay with your your grandfather or whoever. Uh, you'll you'll excuse some of the the old person stuff that they
1: they struggle with because you like them. Um, My grandparents don't have nuclear codes, <laughs> as far as you know. Um,
0: yeah. God, I'll tell you what. I just keep picturing him giving that long rambling answer where he went from phonographs to Venezuelan back on a stage with Trump and Trump turning toward the audience and say, What do you think of that? I and mean, just and just killing with that moment. But we'll see. We'll see.
1: It's fun. You wanna I, I've got his full rambling answer. Should if we, you if you're with it? us
0: next hour, we're gonna play the entire long rambling answer I've been talking about. You should hear it in all its glory. I mean he was all over the map Holy cow. We also have clips of the week next hour on the Armstrong and Getty show.